Hello, podcasters. Patrick here. Got another one for you here. Actually, a couple. Uh, just start right into reading this. Anyway, um, I was in foster care, and I was like, I don't know, I think I was 14. Yeah, I was 14 years old. My foster father, Ron, Ron Sr., we called him, um, had been teaching me how to shoot a longbow so we could go out and uh, go bow hunting for deer when the season hit. So we would go out every uh, Saturday right as the uh, sun would rise and uh, go practice shooting at uh, bales of uh, straw with uh, targets on them. I got pretty good, get pretty good, pretty good uh, tight groups, tight, tight groups of uh, uh, arrows that you know were pretty close together. So anyway, uh, we were getting prepared for the upco- upcoming uh, bow season for deer hunting, and uh, Ron Senior and I went on our uh, to the Department of Natural Resources to get our deer tag drawing at about 5 a.m. So that got us our legal tags for uh, hunting deer, and uh, we did get a couple of our tags, so we went to this place called Marion Springs in Michigan. Anyway, uh, it was an excellent corn-fed uh, bucks that dominated this entire area to hunt at. So uh, on that opening day, I walked out to my blind where a pile of apples had been placed to... Uh, draw deer in and some corn and uh, sat in my ground blind and right after Ron Sr. had left uh, and daylight came to the horizon I heard a truck pull up to where I was hunting the Ford truck had a camper shell in the back and the driver got out with his bow he knocked an arrow into his compound boy and bow and pointed it in my direction and he released it, he fired the arrow at me, or toward me, and it went through my jacket and pinned my arm to the uh, to a tree that I was sitting next to. Um, it didn't hit my arm outright, it did slice through my jacket, and, and uh, the broad tip uh, razors uh, cut my skin, so I started bleeding somewhat. And, uh, the man had to unscrew the arrow from the tip because he couldn't pull it out of the tree. It stuck in there so good. So this man was a little bit older. He had a blonde curly wig on, which I thought was really odd. And you could see his gray hair underneath, kind of uh, underneath the edge of the wig sticking out. Really strange. He said he was famous. Said he was calling himself George. And that he uh, took out a Polaroid camera, made me sit on top of a of my uh, bait pile with my deer license held up, my deer tag, and then he took a photo of it, and then he stuck that picture in my front left pocket. Again, very strange. So, I, like I said, George shot me with that broad tip arrow from a compound bow and uh, I don't know very strange I was getting kind of unnerved I was getting scared I didn't get scared too easily but this guy was really creepy so he bragged about being uh, on the radio 
and that uh, they talked about him on the radio. I didn't really understand what he meant, but then, uh, uh, anyway, um, I told him about me a little bit because he asked why I was using a bait pile, and I told him about my foster dad, Ron, and Ron Sr., and that as a foster kid, my family split up, and this is my first time hunting. I was 14 years old, and uh, you know he had a tear in his eye because he, you know, I guess he had a conscience still. So um, anyway, um, this guy evidently had killed several hunters and took their deer tags as trophies and left their bodies lying on their bait pile where they had been hunting. I don't know how many seasons this was, probably two or three deer seasons that this had happened. Maybe more, maybe less, but I think more. And this uh, psycho deer hunter killer, his argument was that, uh, that the hunters used uh, bait piles to kill deer and he was dead against it. So in his way, his sick and twisted way, kill him. So my foster dad, Ron Sr., came back to where I was sitting on my ground blind and um, I was startled because they just, like, I didn't hear him and all of a sudden then there he, there he was. So he asked what was going on and why my jacket was all torn open on the upper sleeve. And I began to tell him the story about this guy, George, and he told me to sit down and not move. And then they moved me over to where there was a little gully and he put some branches there and he said, lie down in those leaves. And then he put a tarp over me and covered it with leaves and I could hear him and he said, stay here, don't move until I come back. No one will know you're here. But he goes, if that truck comes, run. I said, okay. He said, just sit still, don't move until I get back, okay. So the next thing I remember, I fell asleep, then I heard something and I woke up and it was, the tarp got pulled back and there stood some Michigan State Police with, with Ron Sr. So, uh, they began to process the, street, uh, the scene and instructed me to tell them what had happened and I showed them where the arrowhead was still stuck in the tree and uh, uh, we found the wrapper to the Polaroid that was pulled off the backing of that photograph that he took of me and then I gave, showed him where the photo was in my, my front left pocket. They took a plaster cast of where the truck tire tracks had been. I gave him a description of the truck, year and color of the camper shell. And then they cut out a section of that tree to uh, take that broad tip to the lab so they could remove it. And uh, it was so deeply embedded into the wood. Uh, so they did find that uh, he had a thumbprint on that plastic wrapper and then also another partial thumbprint on that arrowhead. Um, so they had detailed evidence uh, and more, they had gathered, gathered more evidence at this particular spot where I was than they had ever had before. So the state trooper put a iodine on my cut and a bandage, and I was told not to talk to anyone about it because it could lead to some really serious problems for us. And uh, 
So I never did. I never did talk about it. And uh, my foster dad, Ron Sr., told me to sit in my room and listen to a particular radio broadcasting on FM radio dial until you know, a certain number. And this was months after this incident. And it was a broadcast directed directly at me from the state police that they had uh, told the entire story about the serial killer and what he had done and who he had killed and how many people that he had killed indiscriminately, these hunters, and uh, that he had finally caught him. And uh, he had brain cancer and he evidently died shortly after that or before that. Anyway... He was dead. He was gone. So, uh, that was pretty strange. Pretty strange for me to encounter that and to live through that and then uh, not even be able to really talk to anybody about it because um, they just wouldn't believe me. So, along those same lines, here's another one. Serial killer number two, I titled it. And uh, so three years later, I'm 17 years old. I'm working at the Fashion Square Mall, Fashion Square Mall, in Saginaw, Michigan. I had just finished my eight-hour shift doing stock at a uh, at a store in the mall. I walked out to my 1976 Vega wagon, got in, and just about ready to hit the key to start it to go, and the passenger doors swings open and a very pretty model-like looking lady sits down and shuts the door and she says look forward and listen to me don't look around just look forward I was kind of startled I said well okay she said don't talk just listen I said okay she told me that there was a man dressed in an old overcoat and he's wearing a gray wig and he's acting like an old woman woman sitting in her car and he was using this disguise and he was disguising his voice to sort of sound like a older woman muffling in the voice and asking for a ride home so the pretty lady in my car said that she faked that she had forgot something in her office and that she would be right back and that she had to speak to me as I was one of her employees in the car. And um, then she would go to her office and then return and give her the old woman a ride home. So the pretty lady said she's going to her office, contacting the state police and that I should not make eye contact ever and keep him occupied somehow so he would not get away. And this guy's like sitting two cars away from us, looking right at me. I can see him in my peripheral vision. And the guy was sitting right there. And uh, so this lady gets out of the car. And she says, keep him busy. I'll go as fast as I can. And she opens the door, locks the door, and then shuts it. And then I just like, wow, okay. So I turn on my radio, lit a cigarette, and... Uh, started listening to some music, and um, I don't know, that was nuts, I remember it very clearly. So, um, I remember to not make eye contact, 
and I relaxed and I smoked my cigarette and uh, I leaned my elbow of my left arm against the driver's side window and uh, my arm just kind of suddenly slipped down and caught the door lock and locked the door. Uh, it was kind of like caught me off guard. I was like, wow, my arm just slipped like that. It was weird. And just as that happened, I looked into the driver's side mirror after my arm hit the door lock and I saw there's the psycho guy dressed as a grandma and he comes up and he pulls on the door to open the door. And I look inside his coat and there's this huge butcher's knife. So he was coming for me. And then he, he, he couldn't get in, so he cussed. And he went back to the pretty lady's car and got in two cars away. I never made eye contact with him, though. I did look over and use my peripheral vision, and I could see him just just sitting in there. It just looked really evil. His eyes were just black. I mean black. Scary black. So, um... So I turned up the radio, and I just sat there, and the minutes just kept dragging on, and I kept listening to music and smoking cigarettes one after another, very nervous, and this guy's just sitting there watching me. And I could, So I just, uh, in order to pass the time, I was listening to, like, ELO and Boston and Queen and other stuff that at that time really impressed me. So I just continued my ruse. And ignored the killer, and I just started bobbing my head around to the music, acting like a fool, blowing smoke rings, you know, just generally acting kind of stupid. And out of my peripheral vision, I could still see, and he was smiling and laughing and enjoying the whole show quite thoroughly. So I just kept it up. I was getting tired, though. I was already tired from my work eight-hour shift, so I was, uh, I was running out of cigarettes. I had to start pulling cigarette butts out of the ashtray and just to keep me going, I don't know, I guess. So I'm thinking, where the hell are these cops? This lady said she would take about 20 minutes, and here it is, it's been 40. 40 minutes of me listening to music and bobbing my head with the white man overbite, trying to pretend like I'm into this music. Anyway, so this guy's staring a hole inside of my head, completely captivated with my stupidity, forgetting that, you know, he's here waiting for her to return so he can kill her. And he just kind of forgot what was going on around him. So, so I just kept jamming out, listening to music, bobbed my head around, kept up my shenanigans. <clears throat> Finally, out of the blue, this net of law enforcement dropped down on Psycho Boy with stealth. Their cars pulled up so fast and so quiet and so relentless that they every point all the way around this this lady's car, the pretty lady's car where he was sitting, they just were on him like ants and they covered him in a swarm. They tore the wig off he had and they found the butcher knife underneath his granny coat. Uh, they handcuffed him behind his back, and then they put his wig on kind of sideways. Made him look like an idiot. Humiliating him. He was livid. He went berserk. He couldn't move because they were all around him. They were sitting behind him, in front of him, 
every or I'm sorry, in, behind him and on the sides, and he couldn't he couldn't go anywhere. Plus, he was handcuffed, so he sat there with this evil snarl on his face, glaring at what evil prick. You know, I could just tell he was just such an evil bastard. So, they took the police took the 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 butcher's knife from him. And uh, and then I found out that uh, he had murdered up to like 12 women in the mall over the course of two or three years, or four years. And uh, by doing this charade as acting like an old woman looking for a ride and just showing up and waiting in his next victim's car, he had stalked women at the mall, saw where they worked, waited in their car after he had broken in and put on his little get-up and waited for them and asked for a ride. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, so this killer, the cop showed me a photograph of him that uh, after they ID'd him and found out that, you know, he had gone to uh, Bay City All Saints High School, same as the one Madonna went to. Anyway, after they hauled his pathetic sorry ass away, the cops lined their cars up, um, like a, with an aisle way down the middle of like, I don't know, 15, 20 cars. All had their lights on, all had their sirens blaring. <clears throat> and uh, they, and uh, they turned off the sirens and had uh, me walk down the middle of them and they all applauded me. The cops stood there and applauded me. They couldn't believe that I had duped this psycho killer asshole they passed the hat around collected up $120 in cash gave it to me and uh, the detective said do you think anybody would believe me and I said no way and then the officer told me we'll call somebody here use this phone to call somebody and I said I don't know and then I realized my brother Mark had been visiting from North Carolina where he lived and he had been staying with my sister for a couple days and he said I said, okay, yeah, let me call him. So I called him. And uh, Mark said, well, I'll come out there, but you better have some gas money because I'm broke. And uh, I met him in the parking lot where all the cars were, cop cars were lined up and lights were flashing. And his eyes were huge. He was freaking out. And he's like, man, dude, what did you do? And I got in his car and I said to him, you are not going to believe this. And I told him the brief version and um, one of his, Mark, Mark Edgley, my brother's classic comment was, no shit. And truthfully, he said, I said, yeah, no shit. Wow. I handed him some money so he could get some food and beer and meet us back at the house. And <clears throat> this is nuts, man. This is crazy stuff going on. This is like 1979, I think. Yeah, 79. So uh, I started to leave. I jumped in my Vega and started rolling out. I pulled up to the parking lot to pull out on busy road, Bay Road is. And another cop, Thomas Township Police, pulls up behind me, throws his lights and siren on. And I remembered that my plate and my plate had just expired the day before. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jeez. Anyway, so 
the state trooper saw what was going on and came to my rescue again. The trooper and the other cop began to argue about my plate being expired and the cop pulled me over and he said, we're going to tow it, we're towing it, we're towing it. And the state trooper said, give me the radio. And he talked to the, his supervisor on the phone or on the radio and uh, the other cop told him to, the state trooper told him to shut the F up and go away. And so he spoke to his supervisor on the radio, the Thomas Township cop, and he got all pissed off and took off out of the parking lot, just squealing his tires. <clears throat> Excuse me again. So the uh, state trooper that came over to bail me out again says, okay, this is what we're going to do. How fast did that car go? I go, I don't know, 85, 90 maybe? He goes, get on my ass, go as fast as you can behind me, try to keep up, and then I got, we're going to escort you, there's going to be another state trooper behind you, we're going to have the lights and the whalers on, so just, we're going to head toward M13, where your sister lives, and just go as fast as you can, we're going to blow through every light, don't slow down until uh, I tell you to on the, on the bullhorn. Wow, what another another adrenaline rush. I get to run all the lights in Saginaw. <laughs> so that was kind of cool, I think, or I thought, anyway, at the time. So I know I was being guided the whole time. I was scared at times. I was scared. I, I didn't know what was going to happen, but all of these things, this, this, this coalesced into the cops catching this serial killer that they couldn't catch. <clears throat> and and I just happened to be the vessel that good Lord decided I could help them with. So <clears throat> I didn't know what I was doing. I, I just, I really didn't. I mean, you know. But I remember sitting in that, uh, in my car, and the officer, the detective actually says to me, how did you do it? What did you do? How did you get this guy to forget to watch the time and to... And he sat down in my car and I told him, I said, you're not going to believe me. I go, you got to tell me. I got to know. We could use this somewhere else, doing something else, catching somebody else. And I said, okay. I just turned the radio on and every song that came on, I just bobbed my head around, acting stupid, pretending that I didn't know he was there. And he just, he ate it up. He just didn't realize that's what I was trying to do. He just thought I was not, he didn't, he just thought that I was oblivious to him being able to see me. When in fact I had, I known, had known he was, uh, uh, well, it should be the whole time. So I just acted as stupid as I possibly could. Best acting I've ever done. So, wow. So, you know, I couldn't tell this to people either, you know. Couldn't tell them about the one when I was 14. Couldn't tell them about the one I was just going through at 17. You know, they'd say, oh, bullshit, you know. They're so ready to judge me and ridicule me. And uh, so I never told them about it. I never did. I never do. I mean, I, I knew that no one would believe me. That I that I was telling the truth or that I was any sort of hero. So my brother Mark knew. And then my dad found out because uh, I prompted my sister Bonnie to 
relay this recent event to my dad, who had just showed up a week after um, from North Carolina, just like Mark, my brother. Um, I don't know why they did that, but they did. So dad asked me to... Uh, asked me about it and why I was lying to Bonnie about it and I was like I didn't I'm not lying so he sat me down and called the police department and to confirm it all because he just didn't believe it so the arresting officer was called and he came to the phone and asked uh, to my dad to put me on the phone so he asked me a bunch of questions and I answered them the best that I could I mean I might have got one wrong or whatever but he knew that it was me and my dad listened for a while. He picked up, and my, I handed the phone to my dad. My dad listened for a while to this detective. And then he said, hold up the phone so your son can hear. And my dad held it up. And I could hear the loud cop, I could hear the cop say loudly, your son is an effing hero. And my dad said, okay. And he, and he listened to the phone for another second. And he just hung up the phone and he looked at me and stared at me. He said, how did you do this? I said, I, I just did it. The lady asked me to do it. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And I just did it. I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I even did it. It just happened. He said, I can't believe this. I just, I can't believe this. So, uh, I think that was the first time I saw my dad cry. Yeah. So anyway, whew, crazy man. These are the types, these are the kinds of things that happen in my life. I mean, just not every day, but frequently. There's something crazy like that. There's something crazy going on. Here's a couple more. So uh, intuition. This is what I call communication from our soul. So uh, I was 17, I was working at the Germania Club in Saginaw, which was a golf course and whatever else, dining hall, bar. <clears throat> anyway, there I met a, a waitress there. She was from the east side. She was curvaceous. She was, she was cute. But unknown me, she was completely insane. Her boyfriend that was in prison for murder kept post ties on her, even on the inside. So she continued to do his drug dealings and uh, using and selling. And she was nuts, there's no doubt. Anyway, I just didn't know how crazy. I just, I didn't, I didn't, I just thought she was a little street, you know? I didn't think too much of it. So I convinced her to, for us to go out and do some, go out and on a date. But it wasn't really a date, I guess. We just drove around. And she delivered drugs to people, and we drank beer in her car. And, and then while she was driving, she started getting higher and higher because every time she stopped, she'd stay for a little while and do some drugs with them. And she came back into the car, and she was agitated, driving really bad, really poorly, pulling out in front of trucks and stuff just to unnerve me, which didn't. So she just said, that's it, that's it. So she just takes me back to my driveway, pulls in, says, just get out. She's yelling and yelling and yelling and screaming, calling me an asshole. And I'm like, wow, 
wow, that's okay, whatever, man, cool, whatever, you know, wow. So I get out, and she just peels out of my driveway on Gratiot, which was a gravel driveway at the time, and uh, gravel's hitting me, and, you know, it hurt. I was like, wow. So uh, I yelled at her, and I called her a stupid bitch. <laughs> she drove away. She turns around in the opposite direction and comes flying back and slows down in, in front of the driveway a little bit and uh, points a pistol out the window and starts blasting at me. I'm serious, shooting a gun at me. And the rounds were going wide, and but one did ricochet off the gravel and the round hit me in the arm. It didn't penetrate my arm, but it left a really nasty blood blister on my wrist and it hurt, it stung. And I just, just, I was like in awe, like, oh my gosh, did that really just happen? And um, as she fired the gun through the driver's side window and drove past, uh, two cops were sitting in a parking lot talking and saw the whole thing and called for an uh, ambulance. And uh, ambulance came by and looked at my wound, cleaned it up, put a bandage on it. Said, man, you're lucky. You don't know how lucky you are. I didn't feel very lucky at the time, so I said, okay, whatever. So, uh, so I knew I couldn't, again, I wasn't going to tell anybody because no one would listen to me. I don't know why or how I lost credibility, or maybe I just never had it. Maybe we don't have credibility when we're 17. Anyway, I just thought, what the hell, man? I can't even tell my best friends. Joe or Greg or Kurt, Kurt, uh, nobody, nobody, I, nobody would listen, nobody believed me, they were just, I just walked away in disgust, just disgusted, so, anyway, that was, uh, that was kind of crazy, and so here we go again, here's another one, uh, 1984, I think it was 84 or 85, uh, after a long night of drinking at the Bay Road Lounge, we were decided we were just sleeping in my buddy's car for a couple hours, so we were sober enough to drive back. And uh, so I, we're there, we're sitting there, I'm propped up in the passenger seat, and I hear a click noise on the glass right next to my head. So I open my eyes and I turn and I look and I see the barrel of a gun. I guess it was a nine millimeter pressed against the glass. And then I hear a black guy and I see a black guy standing there and he racks in another round, puts the gun to the glass again and click, a large click again. Another failure. There was a dry round, must have been bad ammo. So two times in a row, the guy tried to kill me right then and there. And he starts laughing. He's like cussing and laughing. He says, man, that dude's so lucky. You don't even know how lucky he is. And uh, I didn't even know it at the time. I just thought it was like a dream or something. I, I didn't even realize that it happened because I was so drunk and so hungover at the time. And that they had just shot a young man the same way that I, was, that I had been introduced earlier that day by by a uh, former high school classmate, Kathy, Kathy Chad. 
And in fact, uh, we were supposed to meet up with him later to have drinks, but I never did. I never saw him. But I did see his car as we drove through the parking lot, and the window was shot out all laying in the, in the parking lot. And he was laying, had his head kind of leaning out the window without uh, focusing his eyes. His eyes were open. And it was the same guy. I was just like, wow. And then I found out that, you know, he had been shot through the window of his car. So um, then I found out that uh, it was a uh, policeman's convention and the Saginaw Civic Center, mostly cops from Detroit. So I'm not sure if this is a racial-generated murderous rampage that uh, a couple of Detroit cops thought they could uh, balance out the scales of hundreds of years of racial oppression uh, in one evening. So, okay, well, that's it. That's all I got for tonight. And uh, I hope somebody, uh, I hope somebody listens to it and uh, responds to it and tell me what you think. Anyway, and uh, so it's October twentieth. I hope you all are all safe. Take care.